Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. America remembers the anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks. We're also just 24 hours away from the third Democratic presidential debate in Houston. My bags are packed. I'm headed down there tonight. And vaping furor intensifies as President Trump vows tougher U.S. scrutiny regarding the Juul e-cigarettes. All of that plus more fallout from John Bolton's departure, an inside look at what went down in John Bolton's final hours at the White House. Hagar Shamali's here, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. Craig Gordon returns, Bloomberg News Washington bureau chief, and Ron Bonjean, partner at Rock. Solution, former chief of staff to the Senate Republican Conference, as well as communications director to former Speaker of the House, Denny Hassard. Bombshell story crossing the Bloomberg terminal just earlier this morning. A, 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 a behemoth of, of reporting by our colleagues on the White House team. And we're thrilled to have Craig Gordon, Bloomberg News Washington bureau chief, with us in studio. President Donald Trump discussed easing sanctions on Iran to help secure a meeting with Iranian President Rouhani later this month, prompting then-National Security Advisor John Bolton to argue forcefully against against such a step. This, according to three people familiar with the matter, this was an Oval Office meeting on Monday when the idea came up and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin voiced support for the move as a way to restart negotiations with Iran. It all comes, as we now know, Bolton has departed from the administration. But I want to kick things off with Craig Gordon. What does this tell us as a window into the administration for the reasoning why Bolton was ousted? Look, we always thought that uh, John Bolton uh, and his reputation, and I think he would he would say he earned this reputation of being a hardliner. Um, he always thought that Iran, um, you know, Donald Trump says he doesn't want regime change in Iran. John Bolton very much wants regime change in Iran. He wants to re- essentially eliminate the threat of Iranian uh, weapons against Israel. And he this is a position John Bolton has held for as long as I can remember hearing about John Bolton. So there should be no surprise that when talk of uh, Trump meeting with the Iranian leader Rouhani uh, first surfaced in Beerus, France at the end of the month at the G7, that a person like John Bolton would think that was not a very good idea, that it is essentially sort of caving into the enemy. Um, you, you don't talk to these people. This is a country that says death to America still. It's a chant you can hear on the streets in Tehran sometimes. So why would you ever sit down with those people? Donald Trump takes a somewhat more pragmatic view. I think he does take, you know, he, he t- tends to be a person who thinks, 
I can sit across from anybody, Kim Jong-un, Rouhani, anybody, and I can cut the better deal. So why not talk? And I think what we saw uh, yesterday, based on the source reporting from Jennifer Jacobs, Nick Wadham, some of our terrific team covering the White House, was that when Donald Trump said maybe we should ease the sanctions so that Rouhani will come to the table, John Bolton said, you can't do that. Donald Trump said, yes, I can. I'm the president. Also, by the way, you're fired. And, and, and he Exactly. And President Trump was asked about that earlier this afternoon inside of the Oval Office. I want to play for you Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. I want to play for you, Hagar, what President Trump said inside of the Oval today about Bolton thinking he was too tough. Take a listen. John wasn't in line with what we were doing. And actually, in some cases, he thought it was too tough what we were doing. Mr. Tough Guy. So you hear it there in the tone. President Trump not backing down, Hagar. But from your analysis, from your workings in this world, in both Democratic and Republican administrations, from your analysis, where is the U.S. foreign policy headed as a result of Bolton's ousting? I don't know that there's going to be a huge, significant change. Because at the end of the day, President Trump has been working on... I mean, he's had he's had their he's had disagreements, right? But at the end of the day, he's he pursues what he wants, right? So he's pursued negotiations with Kim Jong Un. He has he allegedly invited the Taliban to Camp David uh, against his wishes. He certainly hasn't used military force in North Korea or 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 Iran, for example. They didn't pursue the military strike after Iran struck the drone down. So so President Trump has succeeded in getting his way. Bolton has not really been able to sway him of his views. What I think might change is is not so much the policy itself, because I think President Trump will continue getting his way. And according to my friends, President Trump has been closer to Secretary Pompeo anyway, and Pompeo and Bolton used to fight. Right. But used I, to, probably still are. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what what is uh, what is concerning and what I hope gets fixed is this question of the national security process. And having been at the National Security Council myself and going through those systems and and the the process is critical, certainly when you're facing crises and, and we're facing a lot right now. I want to pick it, up yeah. on this point, because if you're getting in your car on your way home from work and, and, you, and you're hearing about the National Security Council and the process of, of what this does and what it means layman's terms what does it mean what do, explain precisely what you mean and and take your time with it in terms of the process of the nsc and how bolton injected a different type of strategic approach to how the president would listen to the national security advisor versus the national security council that's right so the national security council the the the, the agency the, the group of it, if you will which is about uh when i was uh, there it was about 200 staffers uh it it, it grew to 400 let's say it's somewhere in between that now uh the the job of the national security council is to is to bring all the agencies to the table to discuss policy options for a range of national security issues and to help come to an agreement and then to oversee the coordination and implementation of that policy. And Bolton was like, I don't want to follow those rules. Well, not only did he not really want to follow those rules, but he was known for smaller smaller groups. He was all about you know, only keeping a very tiny group of people in the know, only allowing a very tiny group of people to make any kind of decisions or to weigh in. So it was 
was much more top down, right? So the decision making of a lot of the policy was top down. Um, there were less discussions about it, and he was a very he was a big filter uh, into regarding what information would get to President Trump's desk, um, and that can be risky because it means that he's the only person really limiting what he hears or or allow you know giving him his giving advice. Hagar, yes or no? Does this does Bolton's ousting make a meeting with President Trump and Iranian President Rouhani more or less likely at the U? Not yes or no. More or less likely that Trump and Rouhani meet at the UN General Assembly. It makes it more likely, but I'm not a big uh, I don't I'm not a big believer that it'll happen in Craig? general. I think it's too soon. Definitely more likely. Really? Definitely skeptical it'll happen. I mean, there's a part of this conversation that we haven't talked about, which is. All the domestic political reasons Donald Trump can't meet with Rouhani. Again, uh, Donald Trump mm-hmm. is someone who's looking to conservative Jewish voters to break away from the Democratic Party, where many times they have voted, to, and come onto his because of his very uh, steadfast support of Israel. Now you're going to sit down again. They chant death to America. They also chant death to Israel. And I think there's a lot of American Jewish voters, not to overgeneralize, but I think you could say safely that would not necessarily think uh, – Donald Trump should ever be in the same room with the Iranian leader uh, and particularly this one. And so that there's this there's a there's an international reason for him not to do it, that you may not want to have that conversation quite yet. It's not teed up yet. There's not enough groundwork laid. There's a domestic political reason. And if you think Donald Trump's not thinking about his reelection in 2020, well, you're not paying attention. Ron Bonjean, quickly, uh, we're going to talk more about this coming up. But partner at Rock Solutions, Republican strategist Ron Bonjean, what does Craig have a point here about the domestic political implications of a Bolton ousting as part of a larger illustration of where the president's trying to target some of his reelection efforts? No, I think that's a really good point. Look, Bolton had very low standing in the White House. And we do know, I do know that um, while they wanted him to leave, they couldn't let him leave until the election. Um, that was Mick Mulvaney's strategy. And anything could have gone. And next thing you know, you see John Bolton leaving leaving the White House. I do think that um, some of Trump's ideas um, run counter to some of the some uh, uh, demographics that they're trying to get in 2020. And I just think a lot of the times Trump is just spitballing and throwing out ideas. And it's then like he a creates, freestyle president. Yes, he's a freestyle president. And then he gets severe blowback uh, from official channels like Bolton. And then that makes him, that that angers him, obviously. All right, coming up, more politics and policy, a full court preview of the 2020 Democratic presidential debate. I'm headed to Houston. We're going to have special coverage live from inside of the debate spin room floor. Panel stays, Hagar Shamali, Craig Gordon, and Ron Bonjean. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg television bloomberg radio and you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 this is bloomberg sound on with kevin cirilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2 i'm kevin cirilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television bloomberg radio i'm headed to houston tonight houston houston texas i'm trying to get some barbecue while i'm down there third democratic presidential debate already three but this time The field is narrowing. Ten Democratic presidential candidates will be on the ABC debate stage. We're going to have special coverage while we're down there. And the contrast already being drawn. We were talking a little bit about it yesterday. We're going to dive into it more now with D.C. Bloomberg Bureau Chief Craig Craig Gordon, the boss, 
We also have Ron Bonjean here, partner at Rock Solutions. And Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. Craig, we were talking a little bit about it during the break. I think Senator Elizabeth Warren is poised to have a very strong night tomorrow night as she looks to contrast herself for the first time against the frontrunner, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I think Elizabeth Warren does extremely well in these debates. She's very poised, she's very polished. She obviously has policy papers stacked up to the ceiling but i find that she has a very uh a very plain spoken way of talking about it and obviously the whole point of the debate is you're kind of speaking through the camera to the people to the people in the living room i beg to differ a little bit on a breakout night look i think if you're with biden you want a moderate and if you're with warren and sanders you want a liberal and if you're with kamala harris i don't know what you want because i don't know what she is so (laughs) i i have uh, there you go um so i i sort of i i kind of seriously wonder how important these debates are at this point I mean, obviously, every time Joe Biden steps in, in behind a podium and in front of a microphone, he has the risk of looking old. Um, he looked a, he looked a little old uh, in the first the first couple, um, and but people are still kind of hanging with him. I think they still see him as the strongest person to to beat Trump. So I, I'm not sure you can kind of you you don't win these things on points. You have to win it by convincing people. They have to be able to picture Elizabeth Warren standing on a stage with Donald Trump and being able to whoop him. And I don't think as good as she is at these debates, that's something she can accomplish in one debate. I, I, Ron Mungin, come in here because I hear what Craig's saying and I would never disagree with, with Craig Gordon ever. You know, we follow Craig Gordon wherever he may lead us. And, um, but with regards to the debate, do the debates even particularly matter in the sense that the Democrats would argue that they are anticipating the same type of debate with President Trump and a Democratic nominee to be as completely uh, volatile, for lack of a better word, as the Clinton-Trump debates were. So if we're living in a vacuum where Trump is going to go negative no matter what, and the Democratic nominee just has to win over the 70,000 votes in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, then don't you need to present more ideas in a way that Biden just hasn't right now? Well, I think the debates really do matter, and they'll matter much more closer to the uh, convention. Um, And right now, this is really just warm-up time. Um, And you're right. Every time Biden gets up there, um, there is a fear of him looking old. There is an old versus new thing, that dynamic that's going on. And Elizabeth Warren is capturing that newness. And the media is playing along with it and, and showing how many people are at rallies and the snowball effect that's happening. Right now, I couldn't see her up on stage versus Donald Trump on a debate stage and winning. So these debates are important because it gives these folks practice. At the same time, it helps Republicans tremendously because we're looking at the vulnerabilities of their debate styles. And I, Trump is going to – I mean, I just I, – I think – Trump versus Elizabeth Warren, I think Trump carries the day because he just goes negative and understands the branding aspect of things and right. the TV thing. The uh, Hagar Shamali, uh, the the parallel from my vantage point of the parallel of the vantage point between the Clinton 08 campaign and the uh, Biden campaign are eerily similar. I mean, even Jennifer Epstein's mm-hmm. reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal earlier this week where they, she was talking about how Biden's going to attack Warren for being a corporate or, or to go after corporate ties. I mean, that's just not going to fit. Right. You know, I actually I'm most interested for tomorrow in seeing Biden and Warren finally debate. And they both they're both going to finally have the opportunity to lay out their very different views 
you know, very different democratic views and proposals. And I think, you know, it's been it's been a long time, long time coming. I agree with you. I see a lot of familiarities from the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, and certainly with communications in particular with uh, with 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 Joe Biden, um, where there have been gaffes along the way and where there haven't been really lessons and lessons learned. And um, anyway, I'm curious to see what happens. It's an opportunity finally to see them. Craig, who's going to forget about Bernie? Warren and Biden for a minute. Who who has to really succeed here? Booker, Klobuchar, Buttigieg. I mean, what's at stake for the lower tier candidates? I, I don't I don't want to sound harsh here, but there's really only three. You've been pretty on. harsh this segment. I, Respectfully, there's really, there's really not only, trying to be over the there's line. Really, only three and a half, four maybe people up on that stage, and, and they are they are Biden, Warren, Sanders. I guess you got to look at Harris. Beto but it, seems to be a ghost of himself. Mayor Pete, I I always thought not. I didn't want to say I predicted it, but I always thought that it would be a ceiling for him. Um, and I think he's kind of hit it. He's had trouble kind of having a second act. Um, if you made me name the other five people that are going to be on that stage, I'm not sure I could. So we're like at the stage. I mean, I know it's uh, it, it's only um, September, but the, the party needs to winnow this down already. We know Tom Steyer has made the uh, has made the criteria for the October debate, so we could be back to two nights and maybe eleven people on the stage, or five and six, or however they do it. If I'm the Democratic Party, though, let, let's wrap this up. Let, let's get this down to the real combatants, the real people that are going to fight over the chance to to go after Donald Trump. And I'm I'm sorry to say, but I don't think it's going to be Amy Klobuchar. Wow, we're going to leave it there. Coming up, more politics and policy and tough talk with the boss, Craig Gordon, Bloomberg News Bureau Chief, laying it out. Uh, panel stay, Cigar Shamali and Ron Bonjean. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. Eighteen years ago, pres former President George W. Bush uh, talking to the nation following the uh, horrific, horrific terrorist attack uh, that really launched a, a new era for, for U.S. foreign policy. America remembers 
I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. My guest with me for the the hour, Craig Gordon, Bloomberg News Washington Bureau Chief, and Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, as well as Ron Bonjean, partner at Rock Solutions. Craig, 18 years. It's been 18 years. The president uh, had an address today, but wow, we're still very much living in the in the chapter after 9-11. Yeah, if you're of a certain generation, I guess I'm in that generation, you hear those words, it kind of gives you a little bit of a chill. That would have been the first words Donald Trump, I'm sorry, Donald Trump, the first words George W. Bush spoke to the nation after the attack had occurred. People remember he was in that school in Florida reading a book. They flew him around in Air Force One a little bit. It was confusing and chaotic time and that was his sort of first somewhat feeble attempt to, to reassure the nation what was always been interesting to me about 9-11 is two things one how george i had covered the bush campaign in 2000 and we all remember the contested florida results and all of that and, and a lot of people think and i'm one of them that the day he stood on that pilot ground zero and said you know we're going to get the people who knocked down these buildings was really the day George Bush became the president, not on election day, um, and went on to, you know, obviously launch the Iraq war. It kind of went a little off the tracks for a lot of the American people. But the second thing is really we as a nation had never really been tested that way. We, you know, we are lucky enough to have water borders and friends on the north and south. And so the idea that we were attacked on our own soil was like unthinkable um, to people like me and my generation and the generations after it. That's all changed today. Went through the airport coming back from Milwaukee, Ron's hometown, you know, going through that security line. And that's all 9-11. And so it just changed the way we think about our position in the world, uh, the need to defend ourselves and how we live our lives every day. And I, I don't think we'll ever really forget. Hagar Shamali, take a listen to what President Trump said earlier today, marking the 18th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. Here he is. 18 years ago, the terrorists struck this citadel of power and American strength. But the enemy soon learned that they could not weaken the spirit of our people. I found, you know, it's it's a hard moment. I mean, I, I um, well, first, that section of his remarks um, were good. Uh, I remember that day. I can't forget it. I was in New York. I was in college at the time. And, um, and it just, it brings back, obviously, harrowing memories. Um, but the thing that... I found was so impressive and inspiring is not just the first responders, the first responders we're so grateful for. It was the number of Americans who dedicated themselves to service after that. Uh, a number went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I know my office uh, at Treasury, which uh, I started at, in the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes in 2006, was created uh, through the USA Patriot Act after September 11, and everybody there was motivated to get at the financial networks that supported al-Qaeda. Um, and so, you know, I'm reminded of all that. And, you know, that really actually continues that I find that even 18 years later, that feeling among a number of Americans, a number of civil servants um, and military service, it's just um, it's inspiring. Ron. Yeah, thanks very much. So I was the uh, spokesman for the Senate Majority Leader, and I was in the Capitol with him when we evacuated after we looked out our windows and saw the Pentagon on fire. And just running out and seeing the chaos of our government on that day, and then watching our government stand up and fight back over a series of months and then years was something that, I, that I'm just very proud of our, uh, proud of our nation for. We've... Um, 
you know, obviously we declared war on al-Qaeda. We created a homeland security department. Craig was talking about all the security measures that are now in the airports. But, you know, we were damaged that day, but we weren't done. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear when we all sang God Bless America on the steps of the Capitol that evening um, as the nation, as millions of people looked on. I can't even imagine Ron having been so physically, I mean, just you were right there when it happened. I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I find marks my 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 government career um, over the course of 12 years, it was really this desire to, especially those of us, I mean, we all worked in counterterrorism in some way or shape or form, and it was this desire to make a difference, to coordinate better, to, we were drawn by this bigger mission. And, and truthfully, honestly, it's, we had a real impact in undermining their finances, in preventing uh, not only Al-Qaeda, but other terrorist organizations from conducting attacks on the homeland. And that is a really important point you just made there. For all the bombs we dropped on Afghanistan, the different fighting that's been done in that part of the world, um, obviously taking out Osama bin Laden himself, it was that terrorist financing, crippling those networks, making it impossible for them to move money around. It's one of those things you look back and like, how did we let that happen in the first place? But mm -hmm. once we sort of figured mm -hmm. it out, um, the full force of the U.S. government and working with global governments kind of really shut that down and really did strangle strangle off that um, off that flow of money. But look, this is ever vigilant. You know, this mm -hmm. is we we have pretty much uh, decimated Al Qaeda. Even ISIS is pretty much on the run. But there's somebody sitting somewhere in a hut somewhere plotting to do something bad to this nation because of what we represent, which is freedom and kind of the beacon for the world. And journalists aren't usually so kind of mushy about these things. We cover the president. We cover these topics in a really cold-eyed way. But as Ron was saying, you could not, as an American, putting us, taking on my journalist hat and putting on my American baseball cap or whatever, you cannot be anything but moved and impressed at how the country came together and know that the next one could be around the corner. And it's kind of a terrifying from, thought. From my vantage point, just as, as a millennial, I mean, I was in sixth grade on September 11th, and you knew it was serious because every single television channel had the new the network news on, from Disney to Nickelodeon, all of the children's entertainment. It was all broadcasting the news. More politics and policy as the nation remembers 18 years ago today, the September 11th terrorist attack. Thanks to Craig Gordon for being here. He's the Bloomberg News Washington Bureau Chief. I know you've got to get back to work. Hagar Shamali stays as does Ron Bonjean. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. What a great song. On a rainy day, cloudy day here in Washington, D.C. I'm headed out of Dulles, oh boy, to go to Houston, Houston, Texas for the third Democratic presidential debate. We're going to have special, special coverage all from Houston, Texas tomorrow as the winnowing field narrows Elizabeth Warren's showdown with former Vice President Joe Biden. Even I can't say it with a straight face. I mean, we in the media, we just hype up these debates nowadays. It's like Game of Thrones or something. Here with me to navigate through the politics and the policy of the hour, Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. Hagar, you've been everywhere lately. I saw you on MSNBC the other day. I read some column you wrote. You're everywhere. I'm trying. I don't I'm know working how you do it. it. I'm hustling. You know, hey. I'm short on time, not on hustle. You know, there's not enough 
hours in the day, but no. we're grateful that you make time for Bloomberg because <laughs> it really means a lot to us and adds to our coverage. Ron Bonjean's here, partner at Rock Solutions, the architect behind the scenes of all Republican messaging. You are town. too kind, but I'll take it. I'll put that <laughs> on my LinkedIn page. Thanks. <laughs> um, all right, so now we do this thing where it's what's on your radar and stories in the headlines. Trump banned Jewel, not the singer. But the e-cig, I texted my, uh, um, I shouldn't say, I'm going to stop talking. I have a radio show. Uh, But vaping furor intensifies as Trump vows tougher U.S. scrutiny. Faced with worsening epidemic of teenage vaping and a mysterious illness stalking users of cigarette alternatives, the Trump administration promised to ratchet up its oversight of a burgeoning but increasingly troubled industry. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal. Trump says that vaping had become an urgent public health concern in the U.S., specifically with respect to children. Speaking alongside Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, he told reporters that 5 million kids—I didn't realize this—5 million kids vaped this year alone and a year prior to that it was 3.6 mil and those are just the one survey because you know those kids who are filling out the surveys are probably lying i mean you know you're a pollster i mean they don't want to confess or admit ron that they've done Mm -hmm. these things five million kids vaped what what, what are they charging them next to their iphones i mean it's hard to (laughs) it's hard to say how many times they're doing it but they're doing it a lot more than than they're saying obviously um, I think this is a very smart move on the Trump, by the Trump administration because they're trying to find some type of answer for health care. Uh, there's a couple issues going on right now is the trying to tackle the high cost of drug prices um, as well as dealing with the surprise, uh, surprise billing issue. Um, uh, you know, that's out there as well. And neither have an easy solution. This one is right there served up on a silver platter. You've got a health crisis on your hands. You know, you have multiple health officials saying this is bad news. So for Trump to capitalize on this politically is a smart idea. I actually I agree with you. You know, as a, as a mom, I find it. Yeah, I was. I you didn't, know, okay, you said it. I yeah. Mean, were you nervous? Five million kids have vaped. Right. Like I'm. I'm going to take off my former government hats here and and <laughs> forget and, about the Middle East for a second, Hagar. <laughs> as a mom of two children, and and you know, it it concerns me, and it's almost as though this. The product was created or marketed to children, and that's, that's what's sick. Okay, yes. and, and I'll say that because because you know I'm reading these the the reports of this all day. It's been everywhere, social media and whatnot. And Jewel Labs Incorporated had been marketing these on on social media marketing. Ugh. I mean, and they've been popping up in the feeds, and you know uh, that that's just what's so surprising. So they're gonna really really go after Jewel Lab Inc. Uh, and and it's a warning shot about an onslaught of regulatory approaches that are going to, to happen. Ron, but from your work in the private sector, what did we learn today about the impact that 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, regardless of who its occupant is, whether it's a populist or a centrist, the impact they can have on the private sector company with the power of a microphone. Right. This is very different than a Trump tweet. Yes. I mean, this is from the Oval Office saying this is a major health crisis and they're going to do something about it, which they now will. Um, it showcases the fact that uh, companies and brands need to be extremely careful when they're dealing with kids, especially anything that has to do with flavored, um, you know, something something that has to do with flavor that could be potentially dangerous for you. I mean, remember Four loco. 
Do you remember that uh, flavored alcohol? You know that type of thing that was ended up being, getting banned. Um, that kind of this is, reminds me of that at a much much wider scale. I do want to read a, a, sta- a statement from Altria Group Incorporated, which invested $13 billion in Juul at a valuation of approximately $35 billion. A spokesman for Altria says, quote, We agree that urgent action is needed and we look forward to reviewing the guidance. Reducing youth use of e-vapor products is a top priority for Altria and uh uh, just as a disclaimer, Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News, parent company of Bloomberg LP, has campaigned and given money in support of a ban of flavored e-cigarettes and tobacco. So that's what's on my radar. Jewel. Ron, what's on your radar? Well, the whether or not uh, President Trump is going to do something regarding gun control, if he's yeah. going to actually um, sign an executive order or put something over to Congress <clears throat> for – uh, for them to actually tackle. It's really unclear. I mean, you know, if the um, if the uh, shootings that happened in El Paso and in Ohio occurred this week, I think we would see action on the floor. I think you would have seen a reaction and then moving. But unfortunately, you had this time go, <clears throat> a lot of time went by in August because members of Congress are back home. Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, said he talked with President Trump about this earlier today. He, he characterized the uh, conversation as, quote, very encouraging, end quote. Uh, Democrat Chris Murphy and Pat Toomey, the Republican from Pennsylvania, they said that they're going to hear from President Trump by Thursday, tomorrow, whether or not they're going to take a position uh, on background checks that the NRA has opposed. And again, just as another disclaimer, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who owns Bloomberg LP, founded and helps fund Every Town for Gun Safety, a nonprofit that advocates for universal background checks and other gun violence prevention measures. The suburbs, I mean, I, I hate talking about tragedies through the lens of politics, but suburban voters, this is a losing issue for, for it's a losing issue for the NRA in the suburbs. And there's independent voters which tilted the house back to blue in 2018. And 2018. Those voters, got, if, if they want to win back anything, the Republicans, they got to win those suburban voters. So, Gar, what's on your radar? Yes. So, in a move that will surprise nobody, um, as a sanctions nerd, I was I'm very. A nerd too. I know we love to nerd out, um, but I'm not I, like a smart nerd. Go ahead. Yes, you are. <laughs> I was very impressed with yesterday's uh, action by the White House, Treasury Department, and State Department. The president signed a new executive order uh, consolidating all counterterrorism sanctions authorities, and then Treasury and State Department followed up with a number of actions against a wide group of terrorist entities, individuals, leaders across. The board and so what does I, that mean? Translate it. You know, well, it Secretary Mnuchin came out to say that they had taken action over the last year against an unprecedented number of counterterrorism targets, and I expect that only to increase. And so I like that muscle flexing, certainly when it's on counterterrorism, certainly when it was on the eve of the September 11 anniversary and on Bolton's departure. That's right. Day. Yeah, there's a lot. All right, uh, we've got literally 30 seconds left. So, Ron. Winner and loser tomorrow night in Houston. Go. I think Elizabeth Warren <clears throat> scores more points tomorrow night. She's on a roll. And who loses? Uh, like Joe Biden. Uh, I agree with Ron. I agree with Ron. Yeah. I think I'm going to say that Warren wins, Biden wins, but I think like a Klobuchar or a Booker, I think one of them is going to have a breakout moment, one of the lesser tier candidates. They have to. This was a yeah. fun show. On a, and I had a good time. I had a good time. Would you I come back? I had a good time. 
Would you come back? I would come back. Please. I appreciate Absolutely. that, Ron. I'll I appreciate that. I'm headed to Houston. Time. If anybody knows any good places to eat down in Houston, I love barbecue. I love spicy food. Just let me know. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.